performance in its real original definition is about achieving energetic equilibrium. It's to say that you don't feel over-indexed in your life on one side of yourself. You feel like you can be your whole self. You're balanced out. But balance in the colloquial definition, the way we use it now, has really become stripped down to this idea of being really good at being busy. So to say that a woman is balanced, like she's so balanced, I don't know how she does it, is not to say, wow, she's really hit her energetic sweet spot. I don't know how she does that. What you mean when you say that a woman is balanced is she can juggle so many tasks without dropping the ball. And being busy has nothing to do with being healthy. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. I'm your host, Nicole Ingram. And I'm your host, Hannah Warren. Hey friends, I am so excited about today's conversation. I had the absolute pleasure of sitting down with author Catherine Morgan Schaffler to discuss her incredibly profound book, The Perfectionist's Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. Catherine is a New York City-based psychotherapist who runs a private practice that serves ambitious perfectionists of every stripe. Catherine works with her committed clients to help them shift from a place of relentless striving to one of thriving. I loved getting to connect with Catherine. She is warm and funny and full of wisdom and really very much like the human version of her book, which is fantastic. She has such a unique take on cultural norms and the power of connection. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Joining us today is Janet McDonald, who runs the business services division at Onsite. Janet has a wealth of experience working with high-capacity leaders and brings her expertise in leadership development to this conversation. It was such a delight to sit down with both these women, and I can't wait for you to jump in with us. Hello there, Catherine Morgan Schaffler. How are you doing today? I'm well. Thank you for having me. We're so honored to be sitting down with you. Um, Today, we also have in this conversation, our VP of Strategy and Business Services, Janet McDonald. Janet, so happy that you're here. Thank you. And Catherine, so nice to meet you. I'm so excited to talk with you. Likewise. Same here. So let me give you a little bit of like a little story. One of our Living Center program alumni told our team, get this book, This is like by far the most transformative content um, that I've encountered since the Living Center program, which is saying saying a lot. So Mm -hmm. I look it up and I see the title, Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control, and I am a perfectionist. I'm just going to like full disclosure, come out and out myself before we have this conversation. So of course, I love the title and digging in. There's so much that is like laughable to me about it because I feel so pinned to the wall. So (laughs) I'm going to just say thank you for this work and then ask kind of how perfectionism as an idea kind of presented itself to you in your work. Yes. Well, I'm a perfectionist too, which surprised me Mm. until I took a deeper dive into this construct and topic. And it, you know, this book was many years in the making I've worked with a lot of perfectionists in a lot of different clinical settings. I used to have a private practice on Wall Street, so I saw a lot of women in big law and finance. I used to work on site at Google. 
I worked in a rehab in Brooklyn, which addiction and perfectionism intersect in lots of different ways. And I worked in a residential treatment center with kids who had been abused and neglected and really didn't have a sense of belonging. And maladaptive perfectionism certainly arises when you encounter trauma like that. But maladaptive perfectionism, which is a research and academic term for when perfectionism shows up in a destructive way, wasn't the whole story. It wasn't what I was noticing. And I saw a lot of perfectionists who were able to harness their perfectionism and that drive, that ceaseless energy inside of themselves in some really purposeful ways, ways that helped them be more of themselves, not less of themselves, Mm. and ways that helped them um, ignite their values and really lead intentional lives. And I didn't have the language for what I was helping my clients do for so long and what they were teaching me about perfectionism for so long. And when I really dove into the research, I realized, oh, nobody has the language for this. Mm. We're in the infancy of our understanding of this construct of, you know, perfectionist and perfectionism. There's no agreed upon definition even. Yeah. Yeah. So this book really rose from my desire slash need to put to language what I was noticing to Mm. offer women in particular, but everybody, a new, better way of thinking about perfectionism and to just contain it all in one place. Books are so good at doing that. They're just Mm. these beautiful containers. And so that's where the Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control sort of came from. I love it. That's great. I, of course, love the fact that you're focused on the female perfectionist, but why did you decide, other than them, that probably resonates with you as well, to go down that lane versus just perfectionism in general? It's a great question. So what I discovered was that perfectionist is a highly gendered term. And I'm really interested in sociology and marketing and advertising. And those peripheral interests are really deep passions of mine and they intersect with psychology so much. So I don't even know if I would call them peripheral interests, but what I noticed and what I continue to notice about the way our culture perpetuates gender performance expectations is that it's never direct, right? It's always indirect. When you look back on advertisements, for example, from the 50s, you can see how direct the marketing and messaging is Mm -hmm. in the way that it's, you know, normalizing smoking cigarettes, for example, or, or normalizing the fact that women should be homemakers. And when people look now at advertisements back then, it's like, oh, of course, like, I can't believe this ran. But when we look at advertisements today, we operate with this bias where we think, oh, it's just an ad. It's just, you know, it's not trying to perpetuate cultural norms about how to behave and certainly not gender performance expectations, but that's just not true. And so in the same way that a word like bossy is used to regulate authoritative qualities and expressions of power in girls and women, you know, you're, don't be so bossy, don't be so sassy. It's not something you say to boys. Mm-hmm. And that that has become less implicit and more explicit because we've grown our awareness of it. 
Um, and Sheryl Sandberg in particular really broadcast that message of stop calling girls bossy. They're authoritative. And when you call women perfectionists, I noticed a directive attached to that, which is don't be such a perfectionist. Just take it easy. Just relax. You can't do everything. Just try to balance out. Don't forget about self-care and all that kind of stuff. And I started to realize that men are not getting this message. And the corollary message, which is very loud in advertising in particular, is towards women. And that is to find balance. Mm. And, you know, you're doing well if you can juggle all the needs of other people and your own needs and have some kind of sense of engagement and traction in your career and also pick up your kids from school and also look a certain way and maintain a certain weight and be palatable to all these people all at once. It's just like a wild goose chase. Meanwhile, male perfectionists are not expected to diminish or explain their perfectionism. It's just accepted as part of a more holistic picture of who they are. And so I began to recognize that that word perfectionist the subtext of it is about women who are really ambitious and expressing power. And when you tell people, just don't be so much of a perfectionist, you're not telling people that, you're telling women that. And what you're saying is, you are doing too much. Get back in your spot. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I, you in your book, that's so powerful. Thank you for articulating that so clearly. You, you talk in your book about how that's just been so pathologized. Like it really Mm -hmm. is discussed as if it were a disease in many instances. And I think about even that word balance, which is such a beautiful word and holds so much weight, but obviously is very, can be interpreted many different ways. Um, Even in the wellness space, you talk about, you allude to this idea of mindfulness and how even that has become a bit of a pejorative term. Do you want to unpack that a little bit? I love the way you reframe some of that language. Yeah, I think you're hitting the nail on the head, which balance in its real original definition is about achieving energetic equilibrium. It's to say that you don't feel over-indexed in your life on on one side of yourself. You feel like you can be your whole self. You're balanced out. But balance in the colloquial definition, the way we use it now, has really become stripped down to this idea of being really good at being busy. Hmm. So to say that a woman is balanced, like she's so balanced, I don't know how she does it, is not to say, (laughs) wow, she's really hit her energetic sweet spot. I don't know how she does that. What you mean when you say that a woman is balanced is she can juggle so many tasks without dropping the ball. And being busy has nothing to do with being healthy. And so we're being sold this idea that being healthy is about being able to be efficient and being able to do things. And, you know, women are so much perceived in their role to others. So it's being able to be a good mom, a good partner, a good, you know, whatever, all the fill in the blanks. And so I talk about in the book how I would like us all to get behind the notion that balance is not real. It doesn't (laughs) exist. I don't know one balanced woman. I know a lot of women who are like two weeks away from feeling balanced or one holiday season away from being balanced or one generous extension on the deadline Mm -hmm. away from feeling balanced, but nobody actually achieves balance. And all these women were coming into my practice, brilliant women, women who were doing everything so well and saying, 
something to the effect of, yeah, you know, the problem is though, I just, I can't, I can't find balance. So it's like just this phenomenon is happening where we're simultaneously telling women that they're doing too much when it comes to ambition and power seeking and that they're not doing enough to portion control their lives such that they can do a million things without dropping the ball. And they're in a double bind. It's a knowing situation. And this is the real danger of that, which is that women internalize their failure to do that. They don't think, oh, I'm failing to do this because it's an impossible effing directive. Mm -hmm. They think I'm failing to do this because something's wrong with me. Other people have this figured out, but I haven't had it figured out yet. And that's when it gets really dangerous because you start to attach yourself to a false narrative about how something's wrong with you. And the number one thing that I'm broadcasting in the Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control is like, assume there's nothing wrong with you. Right. At at OnSite, we sort of really base uh, the work that we do on two pretty central concepts, which is there's centeredness. Mm-hmm. and groundedness versus balance. So mm-hmm. you, in your book, talk about that in beautiful ways about claiming and reclaiming who you actually are and standing firm and confident in that. And for us, that's the same thing. We are centered in who we are, and we're grounded and no, we're never going to be balanced. You know, oftentimes the work-life balance to me is always a funny concept because to me it says work is bad and life is good. Um, and mm. I love the tapestry. Um, and most of us get passion and energy from our work that we also take into our life and vice versa in our, from our life that we take into our work. And so for me, that sense of I am centered in who I am and grounded in who I am versus trying to balance it all perfectly. Yeah, I love what you just said about I love the tapestry. Mm. I think if we can see life as more of a tapestry instead of compartmentalizing it, because your other point, Janet, about how sometimes I take the energy from my work and it energizes me into my life and it's isn't it supposed to spill over? And isn't that the point? You know, yeah. I love that. The tapestry is a visual I haven't yet held, but I'll be putting that in my repertoire. Mm, I love it. <laughs> Janet, I love that you brought that up because I've always found that phrase to be a little bit funny in the sense that it sort of alludes to this idea that work is not life. Like your life begins outside after you clock out or after you're done doing, like completing your duties. And that kind of, to your point, Catherine, goes back to that sort of like TV dinner compartmentalization that we are encouraged to do. It's like this belongs over here and that belongs over here. And I think back to sort of the pathologizing of these ideas, women's lives, like the whole person, if we look at the person in a comprehensive way, that is like how we get to holistic care. That's what like self-care looks like, knowing that everything is touching and knowing that at the root of these questions that women are asking, what is wrong with me is there, there's a lie. That's what, that's what's wrong. There's a, you're believing a lie. And I love um, that you get to debunk that for people. And I guess, as I think about what your work entails, it's so beautiful. I'm wondering how long it gets, how long it can take before you actually say, so the issue is you're believing this mythology that we've all bought into for so long 
Um, how does that, like, what does that conversation look like with your patients? So I, everybody is different and everybody comes in with a different, you know, what's referred to clinically as a presenting problem. I've gone to therapy myself with my own idea of what my problem is and mm. um, what I'd like to quote unquote fix. And I think what matters most in the room, and I think this holds true for any relationship, is the person feeling understood. Mm. And if you can create, you know, the relationship between a therapist and a client is called the therapeutic alliance. And if that alliance is based on a sense from the client that this therapist understands who I am, the client is not looking for you to solve their problem as much as they are looking to be seen, acknowledged, understood in the world, as much as they are looking to have a witness and a person to walk them through what they're trying to figure out. And I don't know what's best for my clients and I don't pretend to know. Mm -hmm. I have some information and I can offer a lot of different perspectives, which I think is helpful because you know, when it's not your life, it's easier for you to be objective. But whether or not we, quote unquote, go to the heart of a particular issue, and when we do that, and and the timing and mechanics of things, I don't really worry about that as much Mm -hmm. as I focus on, does this person feel understood? Does this person feel like even if it's uncomfortable for them, they can tell me the truth? Does this person also feel like, you know, one question I ask my clients a lot is like, can you tell me the last time you lied to me or the last time that you withheld something from me? Another Mm -hmm. powerful question is after someone tells you something that you can tell is meaningful for them, acknowledging like, wow, that seems really important for you to say, I'm so glad you told me if there's anything else that you're not telling me about this you can tell me now. Mm. And then if they say, you know, no, you can just say, well, if you think of anything else, you can tell me anytime, you know, because oftentimes when you share something with someone, it's like, we're, t- we're testing them, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And um, the test is, can you hold this? Are you going to judge me? Mm. Do you think less of me? Does it threaten my relationship with you? And so we don't actually tell them the whole story. And then it's kind of like when you meet someone and you forget their name, but you have this really wonderful conversation for 10 minutes, it's too late to ask them for their name again. Like you and your client have bonded and your client feels like, oh God, now I can't tell her that I still have more to say. And so in your relationships with your partners, with yourself, with your kids, that's such a powerful question of, is there anything else about this you want to tell me or that, you know, you've thought about in the past few days? It doesn't have to be in the moment. Um, Doing stuff in real time is so overrated. You can ask someone the following week. We had a conversation last week. Is there anything else you want to say about that? Right. And I think, Catherine, just from talking to you, we can tell, but you also mentioned this in your book, that you approach relationships, particularly those with clients, but I'm assuming everyone, from the basis of they have everything they need in and of themselves to solve Mm -hmm. and address their challenges and problems. Tell us a little bit more about that. What, what leads you there and how do you get that out of them such that they know and believe that? So I don't believe healing is an informational issue, meaning we pretty much already know what we need to do. It's like not that 
Not that complicated. You take the stairs, eat five fruits and vegetables, servings of, you know, like drink some water. Hang out with kind people instead of terrible people. It's not that we don't know what to do. It's that we don't trust ourselves to do it. And before we even get to the execution part, it's that we don't trust ourselves that we are actually the experts and we know best what is right for us. A lot of energy gets wasted outsourcing your life to other people who are supposedly experts. Therapists are not experts on who you are. Therapists are experts on the way certain dynamics and patterns play out and on the way certain strategies and frameworks could be applied to think about a situation differently. But that's not expertise on you. And, you know, your partner or or best friend or parent or whomever, none of those people have access to your instincts. Only you can hear those. Only you understand what your passions are. Only you understand how uncomfortable you are in certain situations. So it's got to be you. There's nobody else who can do it, you know? Yeah. Catherine, you talk about this notion of power versus control. And how a lot of Mm -hmm. perfectionists are just really aiming to take back control. And that is a message that we, you know, culturally receive, like take back control. Um, You also talk about power as knowing implicitly the immutability of your worth. Do you want to talk Mm -hmm. about a little bit of that kind of reframing from control to power and how impactful that's been in your work? Yes. So, you know, the book title and the subtitle play off each other a little bit. My editor actually came up with the subtitle and I thought it was so brilliant. And the book title is The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control and the subtitle is A Path to Peace and Power. And the subtitle was very deliberately not how to be happy or some version of that because being at peace and having power and being empowered doesn't automatically make you happy. Doesn't even automatically make you feel good It just makes you feel, as you both know, centered. And that's what we really want. We're not really after control, which is this cardboard cutout, very generic version of power. We want power, and power, in the way I define it, is understanding the immutability of your worth. And what that means is that powerful people know that there's nothing they can do or not do that would take away the fact that they are at all times worthy of all the love, joy, dignity, respect, and freedom that you could ever be worthy of, and that you don't do anything to earn those things. Those are all birthrights. So you're already whole. You're already complete. You know, I take Perfection back to the Latin root, perficere, per meaning complete and facere meaning do. So perfection, that's what it really means, is completely done. You know, when we meet someone and we have no idea who they are, we say, oh, they're a perfect stranger to me. We're not saying they're a flawless stranger. We're saying this person is a complete stranger to me. And so what I discovered, which was like the big aha revelation of writing this book is perfectionists don't want flawlessness. It's not actually what they're after. They're after wholeness Mm -hmm. and the wholeness is already within them. And the wanting flawlessness is like wanting control. 
and you think you want control, you think mm. you want it to be flawless, you think of perfect in that like little p perfect way, what you actually want is wholeness and power. That's mm. what real perfection is. It's so interesting to listen to people describe perfect moments to you because they're never describing the material. You're never saying like, yeah. you wouldn't imagine how great the lighting was. <laughs> da, 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 da. They're mm. just describing a sense of feeling really connected to their wholeness and really present. And when they describe moments that like were supposed to be so good, but weren't, they're describing superficial perfection mm. amongst a feeling of being internally fractured in some way. Yeah. Is there sort of, there's this prevailing thought as there is about perfection, perfectionist in general, but one of the thoughts is, or one of the questions around that is, is there room for failure? Is there room for Mm -hmm. failure in that? And do perfectionists have a better or worse relationship with failure? Yeah. I mean, so here's the short answer. Initially, I think perfectionists have a terrible relationship with failure, and it's just a source of all fear and doom. But as you grow into what I what I call and what the research world calls adaptive perfectionist, which is a healthy expression of perfectionism, you really sort of fall in love with failure in a way, and you don't even recognize failure as failure as much as it is just a pivot you know, a blip on the radar, um, more information to have as you move forward. And so, you know, a big arc of the book is that if you're a perfectionist, you are both healthy and unhealthy because mental health in general is way more fluid and contextual than we currently think it is. Mm. And, you, you know, it all mental health operates on a continuum so it's not like you're either super healthy or you're clinically depressed. Yeah. It's context dependent too. And so this book isn't about teaching you how to be a healthy perfectionist as much as it's about teaching you how to recognize what flavor of perfectionism is showing up and what to yeah. do about it. Hey friends, I want to talk to you a minute about emotionally smart leadership. If you're a leader, you're likely up against more stress and overwhelm than ever. And the truth is, you need more than traditional leadership theories to continue to lead your team towards a healthier, more connected culture. You need more sustainable, integrated approaches to leadership and to life. The problem with traditional leadership models is that they only focus on achieving external results. Without emotional intelligence at the heart of your leadership and at your organization, your success is at risk. Compounding stress makes it hard to operate in your strengths. Your capacity as a leader feels restricted. Workplace culture issues persist. Employees feel disconnected. Turnover is high. Retention is low. It goes on and on, but ultimately business results are suffering. After equipping thousands of leaders across diverse industries through our in-person programs, we started to realize that something needed to shift in the leadership industry. That's why we developed this brand new framework to integrate emotional wellness into your leadership, your team, and your culture. This framework may sound familiar to you because earlier this year, we launched an online course called Emotionally Smart Leadership that taught you this framework and how to incorporate it into your leadership and your organization so that you can enhance your capacity, collaborate better with your teams, and drive business results. 
We got such amazing feedback around this framework and how you're already implementing it and seeing the change in your cultures that we want to make it more available to you in your organizations. You may have heard Janet mention this episode, the new business consulting services division that OnSite has. Led by Janet, this new service line offers keynotes and consulting and coaching and an emotionally smart leadership workshop in your space with your team. The business services consulting team, along with members of our clinical staff, are coming to you to provide emotionally smart leadership to your team. That means for a couple of days, you can get our team with your organization, helping you understand and implement this framework that will ultimately help you drive results. We believe that if you want an emotionally healthy culture and organization, it has to start with emotionally healthy leaders. If you're interested in having our business consulting services team, along with our clinical team, come to you and help your team understand and integrate emotionally smart leadership, we would love to connect with you further. You can send us an email at hello at onsiteworkshops.com and we'll get you connected so you can learn more about next steps. That's a great segue into if you feel up for this, breaking down high level. Catherine has in the book, um, Perfectionist Profiles, different styles of perfectionism. I have never seen perfectionism framed as such. I thought it was so beautiful, so profound. And I don't know if you're Enneagram aware, I, my Enneagram profile kind of like I tested equal parts two of the um, five profiles and it actually like dovetailed really beautifully into that. So I felt affirmed and also like had new set of questions. So yeah, everybody always asks me about that. That's so interesting. There's so many connections. I get that question a lot and I get a question about how ADHD relates to messy perfectionism. Interesting. So I would love to talk about the five types. So the five types, just like perfectionism itself, all have advantages and liabilities. And the first type is the classic. And I think this is the type we most think of when we think of our idea of what a perfectionist is. And on the pro side, classic perfectionists are very structured. They add a lot of um, predictability easily to anything that they do. They do what they say they're going to do when they say they're going to do it in the way they say they're going to do it. Right. And so that's obviously a benefit on the con side. Sometimes classic perfectionists can approach tasks in a sort of transactional manner in a manner that doesn't necessarily engender a lot of collaboration or things that create and build connection. So a lot of people can feel a little bit distanced from classic perfectionists and for themselves they can often feel very taken advantage of or taken for granted because it's like oh you know she'll always plan the vacation so she'll know where to go from she'll make the reservation and she'll do this and, and she'll put the deck together and all that kind of stuff so the next type is the procrastinator perfectionist and procrastinator perfectionists want the conditions to be perfect before they start something Mm-hmm. So these people on the pro side are so thoughtful. They really can prepare and understand a situation from a 360 degree angle. And they're not impulsive, which is such a great quality. Mm-hmm. On the con side, their preparative measures can sometimes pass the point of diminishing returns and they can be preparing so much that Mm -hmm. they never actually execute and their perfectionism can show up maladaptively as like a paralysis. 
right? And what's interesting about procrastinating perfectionists is it doesn't matter if the task is outwardly aversive. It doesn't have to be that you're procrastinating doing your taxes. It's like people who really feel, you know, I'm ready to start dating. I just have to do this and that and that. And, and yeah. I just have to retake my pictures before I put them on a dating profile and da, da, da. And it's like, you know, so the counterpart to the procrastinated perfectionist is a messy perfectionist and messy perfectionists are start happy. They love starting. They start easily. They effortlessly push through the anxiety of new beginnings and they love new beginnings because new beginnings feel perfect for them. What does not feel perfect for the messy perfectionist is when they encounter the inevitable tedium of the middle of the process. Yeah, when that middle, <laughs> when that middle ends up not being as perfect as the beginning, um, messy perfectionists tend to disengage or become overwhelmed in a way that lends itself to abandoning the project. So messy perfectionists, if they're not managing their perfectionism, will say yes to a thousand projects, but actually commit to nothing. And then in the end, they have this false narrative of like, I'm not disciplined enough. I must not care enough. Nobody takes me seriously. I'm not smart enough. I'll never get it together. And it can be really damaging. Then there's the intense perfectionist. And these people want the outcome to be perfect. So not the middle or the beginning, but the outcome. And so on the pro side, intense perfectionists have razor sharp focus. Um, They are effortlessly direct. They're not like some people are in an overly politeness contest (laughs) where they're trying to manage their perception all the time and be palatable and be liked. They don't care about being liked. And that has its advantages because they get the job done and they get it done quickly. They care about efficiency a lot. The cons are that if you're not managing this type of perfectionism, you can get to the outcome and that's great. You achieved your goal, but the means by which you achieved the goal created a path of destruction, right? So great, your team hit the goal, but everyone's going to quit next quarter because they are miserable in this environment, you know? Um, And then lastly, there's the Parisian perfectionist. And this type of perfectionism is really interesting because it plays out interpersonally. So when we think of perfectionists, we think of people who always kind of want to have upward mobility, particularly professionally. But a Parisian perfectionist's goal and the ideal that they're seeking is about connection, So they want to be perfectly liked by others, maybe, or perfectly like others, perfectly understand, or perfectly, you know, in a relationship with themselves where they perfectly love themselves all the time, that kind of thing. And the pros to this type are that they really just understand how powerful connection is. That connection is the motor that makes everything else go around. And you don't have to explain that to them. They just get it. They just know On the con side, they can try to take shortcuts to their connection. And we all know shortcuts do not work. Um, And (laughs) the shortcuts are usually focused on people pleasing Mm -hmm. and doing things that make other people happy, but you abandon yourself in the process. So you get into some really toxic people pleasing. Also in the book, you talk about, I mean, we live in an age right now where I know statistics, you can turn them into whatever you want to turn them into, but I think it's hard to argue with increased anxiety, increased depression, increased isolation, increased suicidal thoughts. But you sort of counter that in the book in terms of perfectionist and 
how that's one of the gifts of perfection is sort of the ability to um, handle those in better ways, perhaps. Yeah. One of the gifts of being aware of the way dynamics are playing out in your mind and aware of what patterns you typically, you know, that are well-worn roads for you Mm -hmm. and just like the kind of support you need. Like if you know you're a messy perfectionist, the goal is not to not become a messy perfectionist. It's to understand, oh my God, it's so amazing. Are you kidding me? You can you can start all of this stuff so effortlessly. That's incredible. And then when you get to the middle, you just ask for help. Mm. You just so you helpful. just put a bunch of so- go get a procrastinator perfectionist to help you. Yes. They'll be great at that. Yes. They'll they'll spell out. You need to do these two things next. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, procrastinator perfectionists would do well to like get a messy perfectionist to come over to their house and help them do some stuff. And so it's not about changing who you are. It's about mm-hmm. taking a strengths-based approach, saying, these are my strengths. These are what I want to maximize. Instead of staring at your weaknesses and saying, how do I turn these into strengths or how do I make these disappear? You can't. As long as you're a human being, you are going to have limitations. Yeah. You are going to have weaknesses. Focus on your strengths and focus on asking for support for the weaknesses and putting Mm -hmm. boundaries around things that make it harder for you to enjoy your strengths. This conversation lights me up. I'm getting like so pumped over here. It's just so true. And I love the way you frame not the answer or the antidote, but like really becoming at ease in your body and knowing the immutability of your worth looks like you moving toward who who you are, who you actually already are right now in the world and and in lieu of moving away from it, trying to become a different person, trying to like adapt all these technical changes. I think you describe them as like, okay, well, if I, if I go keto or if I, um, you know, fill in the blank little swap, I love you. I think you said something. I laughed out loud. You said, those are trash trades. Like those are trash trash trades. trades. And I know that because I've done them all. Yeah, I've totally been the person who's like, well, with this haircut, I'm going to do this. You know? like, bangs. I get bangs. You, just, bangs. you know, a lot of changes that, that look like you're changing things yeah. are just rebranding dysfunction. And, and real true change is very often invisible. And it's very often something that only you are privy to. And I encourage the reader to enjoy that private moment where you're, it's such a frustrating part of change when it's like, am I changing? Is anything happening? I feel like I've been working on this for so long and and nothing has happened in your life that's sort of proven to you that you have changed, right? I call it the suddenly moment in the book um, when you suddenly realize like, oh, I am over that person because their birthday passes or something and you don't even realize that it had passed. And then, you know, it's really about being able to lean into the things that we're often taught to lean away from and, and run from. And that quiet moment when you're trying to change and you're in the middle of changing and in a liminal space, you're not quite where you want to be. I think that's a really sacred moment. Mm-hmm. And it's a moment where you have to really give yourself credit for your progress and where you are right now and celebrate that in some way because it is invisible and there is no proof quote unquote and there may not ever be proof you have to validate who you are for yourself first and that doesn't mean by the way 
that other people can't also validate you and that that can't feel good. You know, mm-hmm. another point mm-hmm. I bring up in the book is this thing that I can't stand floating around the wellness space of you shouldn't need validation from other people. That's not true. We are human beings. We need connection. We're wired for it. Healthy people need validation. Everyone needs validation. What's dysfunctional is when your primary source of validation is external and coming from other people. Your primary source of validation, your sense of like, I know that I'm doing this well, or I know I deserve love or whatever it is, that has to come from you. But it doesn't hurt if other people want to pay you compliments <laughs> yeah. or also validate your experience. And not only does it not hurt, we need that. Yeah, that's we right. We need that. Right. And I think the counter to that is as sort of your whole philosophy is who do we let assess us? So, and how are they mm-hmm. assessing us? So, yeah. when they assess us as a perfectionist and that has a negative connotation to them, Are we living that assessment of somebody else's assessment of us drive what we think about ourselves and drive how our future, how we would act in the future? You you give the perfect balance to that, right? Which is, no, 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 wait a minute. You're letting other people's assessments drive you. Stop and think about all of the good related to this. I love your, um, there's a chapter two called, I think something to the effect of something in everything comes in all colors. Support comes in every color. Yeah. Yeah. Which I love. Tell us more about that. So I'm just noticing in real time that I've been saying this phrase a lot because a lot bothers me about commercial wellness. But one (laughs) other thing that really bothers me about commercial wellness is, is this drive to try to release the stigma of, mental illness and and mental health in general by saying it's not a weakness to ask for help. I understand where that's coming from and it's coming from a really wonderful place. However, it doesn't make sense to frame it like that for the purpose of removing the stigma because you're layering stigma on top of it. It's like if, if nobody asked you and you walked in the room and someone said, just so you know, you do not look tired today, okay? So don't worry about it. And it's like, who said I look tired? What are you talking about? And it's like, you know, who said asking for help is a weakness? Maybe that's sort of responding to our culture's idea of what asking for help looks like. But I think a better way to think of asking for help is that the strongest people connect themselves to support. You know, if you think of super successful people, there's, it's not a coincidence that they have like three assistants and, you know, a house cleaner and this and that and whatever. They have as much help as they can get their hands on, you know? And to me, a reframe that I offer is asking for help is a refusal to give up. Mm-hmm. And yeah. when you think of asking for help like that, you realize like, oh, resilient people ask for help. And support comes in every color is one of the 10 perspective shifts I offer in the book. There's also eight behavioral strategies. And that is the idea that when people say, you know, ask for help, it doesn't have to just be emotional help, which feels very weighted and kind of intense and perhaps intimidating. There are lots of different kinds of help. And if you 
define specifically what type of help you need, it can feel immediately lightening. Mm. Like we get overwhelmed with the thought of like, oh, I'm so stuck. I just need help. And if you identify which type of help you need, I identify six types in the book, right? So there's community, financial, tangible help of like getting neighborhood kids to walk the pets, emotional help, which is more like therapy, physical help, which is like going for walks, supportive touch techniques, things like that. And then informational help where it's like, you're not so overwhelmed. You just need to know where to file this license <laughs> to move your business in this direction. <laughs> yes, That's you. the, you know, and so <laughs> notice the difference in, in my sentences of, oh, my, things are so hard. I need so much help. Oh, this things are so hard. I'm so frustrated. I need informational help about this thing. Mm. And it's like there's there's an arrow in the ladder, you know, whereas like the other one's just kind of like an implosion. Yeah. Right. It's like the ladder is a move forward. There is a path forward yeah. that you can take. Mm-hmm. And I love this shift in mindset from I don't know something, I don't know how to do something, therefore I'm going to punish myself for not knowing how to do that rather than having compassion, self-compassion for being in the space where you're either under-resourced or you just need someone to come over and like help you change the light bulb because whatever, they're taller than you. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I just love this idea of self-compassion and, and also the way that you bring the community piece into it because I think those two ideas really work well together. I think I can exhibit so much more compassion and empathy for myself when I'm like rooted in the context of community. And I I love the way you kind of articulate that. Well, it's really interesting what they teach you about building group therapy. And if you're going to build group therapy, you don't want a totally homogenous group. You want people that are, let's say you're doing a grief group for someone who has lost a person in their life. You want people who are about to lose someone in their life and they know it. You want people who have very recently lost someone in their life. And you want people who have many years prior lost people in their life. And the reason for that is you're creating a community in which everyone can help and be helped. Mm. And it's helping and being helped and allowing yourself to be helped that creates healing and creates a sense of connection. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And that's so true. I mean, you can blow that up and blow that up in teams, in organizations, Mm -hmm. in our towns, in our, the more diversity, the better. You also have a definition in the book, which I love, which is the difference between a struggle and a challenge is, and I'll let Mm -hmm. you finish that. Drum roll is is connection. Like the answer to most questions that anyone asks me is going to be connection. I think connection is so powerful. It is the thing that gives us energy. And so to me, when someone is telling me that they are struggling and when someone is saying, I'm really challenged by this, but they're sharing it with me and they're like, this is frustrating, but I, I'm, I'm, I like it. You know, I want this. I, I'm grateful for this. The difference is never the difficulty of the task. I notice that the difference is how connected that person feels to another person 
who either understands what they're going through or can give them some guidance on what to expect or some mentorship or something like that. And so if you think about moments when you really just lose it, right, and feel so frustrated and demoralized from doing something quote unquote little, like small, right? It's not because of the little thing. And people are often confused by their disproportionate reaction to what they believe is is like a simple inconvenience. And it's because you feel burnt out in that moment and you feel disconnected in that moment. And so, you know, it comes down on you like a wall of bricks. But when you feel connected, supported, seen, guided, you can do anything and it can feel energizing for you. That's the difference between a struggle and a challenge is your level of connection. Mm. I love that. That's so beautiful. I'm imagining like a duck becoming just sort of like, (laughs) okay, (laughs) we're good. We're good. Catherine, thank you so much for being with us today. I want to encourage everyone, all of our listeners to get the book, Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control. It's beautiful. It will help you. It will remind you to get connected, to stay connected. And we're just so grateful for you and your time. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you so much. It was great. I am so grateful to be on your show. This is really lovely. And I want to let everyone know if you want to take a little quiz, because I don't know a better way to spend two minutes of my life than taking online quizzes. <laughs> I love um, it. You can go to perfectionistguide.com and find out what your perfectionist profile is. I'm also on Instagram at Katherine Morgan Schaffler. We'll link that in the show notes for y'all too. So thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.